Welcome to SARC Talk. SARC is a nonprofit hand sarcoma research organization that develops and manages clinical trials in pediatric and adult sarcomas. SARC Talk is a podcast to discuss activities of SARC, interview sarcoma research leaders, and review innovative scientific initiatives in the sarcoma field. Welcome to SARC Talk, episode number five. My name is Scott Okuna. I'm a medical oncologist at Mayo Clinic and Chief Medical Officer of SARC. All episodes are posted on our website, Spotify, YouTube, SARC channel, or wherever podcasts are available. Today, our guest is Denise Robinson. She is Director of Research at the EHE Foundation and is on the board of the EHE Foundation since 2019. Denise has over 20 years of clinical operational experiences working on multiple phases of clinical trials and health outcomes research. Denise and I met several years ago as we worked on developing a retrospective study in EAG in the U.S., and that was pre-pandemic, and things have changed. Uh, Denise has a passion for connecting patients, researchers, and clinicians, and we look forward to visiting with her today and to learn more about histology-specific foundations. Denise, welcome. Thank you, and thanks for having me, Dr. Acuno. It's great to be here with you today. Well, thank you. Well, Denise, uh, please tell us, our listeners, how you got involved with sarcoma, specifically EAG, and maybe you can start with what EAG is. Okay. EAG is an ultra-rare sarcoma. It's an ultra-rare vascular sarcoma marked by a tumor-specific gene fusion. About 90% of the cases have the WWTR1 CAMPT1 fusion and about 10% of the cases have the YAP1 TFP3 gene fusion. EHE has a a broad spectrum of clinical behavior. Um, So it ranges from indolent disease with virtually no symptoms to a very aggressive form of disease, which causes severe pain and and usually has a poor outcome. More than half of the patients are diagnosed um, with EHE with metastatic disease, um, mostly involving lung, liver, and bones. And, you know, today in this ultra rare disease, still the diagnostic journey is too long. A lot of patients are still going through multiple misdiagnosis and there are no proven treatments, approved treatments for EHE and really no proven for across all of the stages of disease. So we as advocates have to really keep working hard to help patients and find answers to fight this disease. No, that... That's a very nice summary, Denise. Uh, as you know, you say ultra-rare disease, but how did you then hear about EHE and how did you start putting your time and effort and your passion into this? Yeah, so my introduction to the world of sarcoma and EHE was much like many other patient advocates. I had a close friend who was diagnosed with EHE, epithelioid hemangioendothelioma, is a mouthful. It's hard to say. It's hard to spell. And that was in 2018. And that was the first time I had ever heard of EHE. I didn't know that it was a sarcoma. Um, I knew a little bit about sarcoma, but I did not know that EHE was a sarcoma. And so at that time, I was working in commercial drug development, supporting clinical trials in oncology and hematology. So when my friend got his EHE diagnosis, I was connected with the EHE Foundation. And it's a patient advocacy organization focused on driving research, helping to find treatments and a cure for EHE. 
And my friend was suffering from the most aggressive form of EHE. And it became really obvious to us that his doctors really didn't know what was going on with his disease or how to treat it. So putting my professional experience to use, I went on to volunteer with the EHE Foundation to support their research efforts. And, and that was really, at that time, the best thing that I could do to help, the only thing I could do to help. Well, thank you for sharing, Denise. And you're right. A lot of us, even sarcoma experts, don't see a lot of EHE. As you said, it's a very ultra-rare disease, and it's usually out of family, friends, or loved ones that have it. And given your expertise, it was a natural fit for you to start to get involved with the EHE. And I know that over the years, the EHE Foundation has changed and developed. And maybe you could describe a little bit of what is the role of the EHE Foundation from the beginning and how it's changed and where you see yourself and the EHE Foundation going? Yeah. So, you know, I still consider us to be a young organization. The EHE Foundation was formed in 2015. Four women had joined together in an online community. Um, I think it was Facebook. And they were struggling to find doctors who knew anything about EHE. And so naturally, you know, they decided to form an organization and connecting patients, doctors, and researchers became a core pillar of the EHE Foundation's mission when it was formed. Today, it's grown substantially. Today, we support patients and families in over 80 countries. We're very proud that we've funded more than $1.5 million in research, and we're connected with over 150 clinicians and researchers worldwide. And, and that's really to keep the awareness and interest in EHE going strong for patients. And we really believe that patient support, patient education and research, you know, these things go hand in hand. And patients, you know, I've learned a lot. Patients have an enormous capacity to understand research and, and they're really essential partners in their care team and in research. And, you know, in cancers like EHE, patients are the drivers. Without patients coming together, it's really hard to, to learn um, more about the disease and learn how to treat the disease, as you very well know. And I think that diseases like EHE have to rely on a strong disease-specific organization to make sure that these essential things exist. And that's our purpose. And that's where we have to keep growing um, to make these basic things. You know, we take for granted patient education, access to expert care, you know, making sure that people know that expert care exists is really, really important. So we'll keep growing those and, and growing our efforts in education, research, and, and again, expert clinical care. Denise, you, you bring up the point that it started with just a couple people getting together, seeing that there was a need, and out of it, you funded all this research, you developed a program, you're connecting with patients that across not only the United States, but the world. So it's kind of a very unique histology-specific foundation for an ultra-rare tumor. And we'll have another podcast in the future with uh, Eric Lean, who runs the Rain and Sarcoma that you probably know. But that's a histology-agnostic group that grew out of a small group of people and grew into an organization funding research, doing patient care activities. So part of the reason why we're bringing individuals like yourself here is that this is a histology specific group. And I can be honest, I've learned more going to your EHE fight, your meetings, because we start to hear about the basic science. 
and what the evolution has happened and starting to share ideas with other clinicians. So with an ultra rare tumor, maybe two to 400 cases a year, this gives us a lot of great opportunity. So thank you, you and your organization for that. Thank you. Yeah, it is really, really important to bring patients' voices and patients' experience forward for clinicians and researchers. And we hear that time and time again. You know, people like yourself, even our researchers who never see a patient benefit from hearing patients' stories and, and is pulling those people together. You know, every journey is, is unique, but when you start to hear multiple stories and you, you talk with patients, you can really identify the gaps that need to be filled. We agree. I know that you focus a lot of your attention in building the infrastructure, the foundation here in the United States. I do know you do collaborate with other EHE groups and foundations, and maybe you can describe to our audience how your group coordinates with other foundations across the world. Yeah, that is a great, great point. You know, so our foundation is just one part of a really active EHE community globally. There are two other EHE organizations formed. There's the EHE Rare Cancer Foundation Australia and the EHE Rare Cancer Charity UK. And both of these foundations are really active in their regions. We partner with them um, to drive patient education and research forward. And there's also an active patient group now in Canada. They're growing in numbers and funding some really important research in that country. And then there's the newest EHE Italia group that's formed on uh, social media. And, and it's great to see them coming together. So collectively, we all work together and call ourselves the EHE group. I, I would say that probably the EHE Foundation is, is certainly the largest of those foundations. And we take some leadership in sponsoring patient conferences and educational events. These are all aimed at supporting EHE patients globally. And it's important that all of our organizations work collaboratively. All of the efforts are just to benefit EHE patients and the community. I will echo that because there's no, I would say, effort that is not done in collaboration with these other groups. And you have a very good eye to be a big collaborator with these other groups. And, you know, it's a rare group of tumors and why don't we share our resources? So your group, although it might be the largest, have no qualms of working with the UK, with Australia, Canada, and now the Italian group. So this is really exciting and no one takes responsibility, but everybody takes responsibility. So that's kind of a neat thing. That's right, yeah. We know that developing new strategies for research and support for research in EHE is going to be our path forward and it's going to be critical. What have you learned in your role as research development for EHE and what would it be important to share with other groups that are starting to fund research? Because you said you've funded over one and a half million dollars of research you've learned some lessons in funding, what to fund, what not to fund, and how to do it. And I like, we like to hear some of your stories of how you approach it and how you develop the rigor to assess these funding opportunities. Yeah, so I could talk for a long time on lessons learned. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, I mean, in, in an ultra-rare populations like 
population like EHE, it took some time for me to understand, you know, that if we want to really learn about this disease, we need data. And, and you would think that that's a no-brainer, but coming out of a commercial kind of drug development space, you really take for granted how readily available big data is on bigger cancers. But as I said, you know, from an advocacy standpoint, it is really important that we bring patients' experiences and voices forward to researchers, to pharma companies, to regulators, to clinicians even, in very personal ways. Personal interactions are vital um, for learning. But really, you know, if, if I could rewind the clock and tell a, a younger, newer version of us coming along, you know, work towards having a plan to build or have someone help you build, you know, the ability to have structured data sets. That could be, you know, launching a registry, getting observational studies going, and, and of course, these are just parts of a research portfolio. Um, you have many, many external and other funded opportunities, but data about your patient population really drives priorities. It helps reveal and, and discover opportunities, and it sparks conversations about where to go and what to do. What are the questions um, that need to be answered? And, and, and there are a lot of questions to be answered, but data, I believe, is a driver in helping to understand that. And, you know, outside of a patient advocacy organization, there's no institution or organization that's going to do that for your disease. There's no one that's going to do that for our disease, for EHE. Um, so it really leans on patient advocacy organizations to, to lead that charge. And, and the other, you know, important thing, and I, I hinted at this, you know, we, we really as advocates, we want to do everything we can. Every opportunity that comes our way, you know, we want to support all research. We never want to say no, but it's really important to lean on expert advisors uh, to guide us and to make the best decision with the resources that we have. Resources are limited. Time is limited. So we have to do the best with um, the best we can with what we have and try to drive forward in all of the areas of our mission so again, I guess, you know, big lessons learned for a newer organization, data and priorities. Well, I do know that you've set up some rigor around the RFP process. You have expert people scoring it, prioritizing it. Then you internally look at it and then decide what things you fund. And I think that's critical as younger organizations because every bright, shiny object, every passionate investigator might have a great idea, but it's probably does not align with what needs to be done and should be done. So we do appreciate that. And that, and then in follow-up to that is, you know, each sarcoma center that you deal with, each cancer center that you deal with has priorities and infrastructure priorities. And I think you said too, that you can't rely on us you can't rely on an external organization. You have to worry about yourself. So how does the EHE Foundation work collaboratively with all the researchers and institutions to hopefully together drive a, a priority and initiative? Yeah, so it's, um, <laughs> it's a, sometimes it's a day-by-day -day call, but you know the good thing is we are a small organization 
And, you know, and I think that it's important to keep in mind that as an advocacy organization, we, um, we can do things that you might be limited in doing in, uh, in your institution. And that might be for business reasons, um, not necessarily clinical reasons, but business decisions, you know, that are made because we're small and, and we are eager to advance our disease. It gives us the opportunity to be flexible and take advantages of research, research opportunities, clinical care or support opportunities that are available through institutions like yours and other, you know, leading centers, sarcoma centers that we want to send patients to. So I think being nimble, being flexible, we are, you know, we're growing in our business and, and, you know, running our business of our foundation. So we're starting to develop more um, formal relationships with some institutions. That's important. You know, if we want to partner in research, we have to have, we just have to do some administrative things to make sure that all of that is taken care of. But I would say that our being flexible and adaptive to opportunities is probably the best thing that we can do now and staying in touch with all of the expert centers to make sure that we're taking advantage of every opportunity that comes forward that we can bring to patients. I love the word nimble because some of our institutions are not very nimble for various reasons. And as your organization starts to grow as it has to and develop some structure, hopefully you'll continue your nimbleness as you you guys migrate for this. And I think one of the neat things you can do is as a foundation organization, you can pick the best that you want a la carte and work with individuals. I know certain organizations might want to start or start to get connected with clinicians and researchers. Can you share with the groups what has worked well to develop those relationships? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, honestly, and it's just like talking with you, personal outreach is really important. We need a one-to-one connection. And uh, personal outreach has been the number one way for us, for me, to connect with the medical and scientific community. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I have talked with other advocacy organizations and they struggle with who to reach out to, why to reach out. But sometimes it's just taking, you know, if you just read something that someone is working on or find a clinical interest and reach out and have a conversation with them, Nothing replaces talking and working together to do something meaningful, just like you and I met over a project that we needed to get off the ground and talking about that and brainstorming on it. And I think that, you know, for us in our disease, it's really important that we know we we need to know every patient, but we need to know every clinician who's working on EHE, who's working to advance um, science in EHE. And we need to also talk with clinicians who are young in their experience or unexperienced in EHE and grow with them because we can be an educator for them as well. And, and that personal connection extends to researchers, really. We work really hard to find and cultivate interest in EHE. And sometimes that is a really, you have to be creative in, in who you're looking for and what their current research efforts are. As you mentioned, we've got a research grants program, so we're reaching out with that, doing call for grant applications to get interest and and then find people that we can fund. 
And we truly want to stay close to those researchers because it's really important. We know that our patients want to hear from researchers. They want to know what's going on out there. So it's important for us to stay in touch and bring that information back to the patient community. So personal personal contact is really, really key. No, you're right. And, you know, having coffee at CTOS in Vancouver was good just to catch up, to hear what the organization and how it's continued to grow and to get additional feedback and making those personal connections is big. And we do appreciate that. And as I say, it's a two-way street. We all learn together. And I know that you guys have put a effort into webinars and I know you did have a, I think a debriefing of what's going on after CTOS you guys put and you're into a lot of social media. So how, how has that transformed your group and how do you see that going in the future? Well, so we, we really do rely a lot on social media. There is a private Facebook EHE group. I won't say we have it because it is not owned by anyone. It's owned by the patients themselves. And you know, the, thing that is wonderful about social media in a rare disease is that it connects everyone on the globe instantaneously and we can learn from each other and it gives us an opportunity to share educational opportunities, information, connect with researchers, connect with everyone. So I think that you'll see more of that. We certainly don't want to go away from traditional means of outreach, but using private Facebook groups to help patients and patients are a part of the leadership of our organization. So that, and, and almost all advocacy organizations have this. Um, You have patients who have the disease or caregivers who are caring for people with a disease and those people are, are learning and they are managing too. So those communities are really essential. You've really done a great job of leveraging um, the patient advocates, reaching out to them and Part of that is if we rely on us as clinicians, we're going to fail 100% of the time. And I know you and your organization have worked hard to build out a biobank. And maybe you can describe a little bit about what the biobank is and how would someone um, contribute to the biobank? Yeah, so um, great question. The EHE Biobank was the first research project that was fully initiated and is sponsored by the EHE Foundation. And it was created to have a central repository of specimens and to make those specimens available for ethical research. And as you well know, a common challenge in rare cancers, and EHE is no exception, specimens are not available to many researchers. Patients that are treated at large research hospitals may help advance research in that hospital and possibly in other areas too, but mostly in that hospital or that institution. But that doesn't help the researcher who's working at a smaller or other place where there aren't EHE cases. And we recognize that this was a a challenge. We, as rare cancer advocates, don't have a lot of patience to wait all day for MTAs to be enacted and and tissue to be found and, and pulled from one place to the other. And tissue is precious. It only, you know, there's only so much of it. I'm not that many patients are having surgeries, and of course, not that much tissue is archived after those surgeries. So we recognize that model development was a really critical need for EHE. It's a priority. Today, there are less than a handful of EHE models and still no human cell lines of EHE. 
So we really, really strive to get fresh tissue from surgeries. Um, so we're working prospectively to set up a case before the surgery takes place. And then we work to get that fresh tissue into a lab immediately, um, which is really critical for model development. And so people can contact our biobank coordinator. You can go to fightehe.org and reach out. You can, you can message from our website. Um, you can email, you can call, you can message on social media. And, and we get in touch with people to prospectively set up with them. We consent them and have them give us just basic information. You know, when might a procedure take place? who their doctor or and hospital is. And then we do all of that work to set up that case and get a collection kit sent. Our biobank is located and, and housed at the Cleveland Clinic Central Biorepository. So when I say things are sent and sent back, we're really talking about kits that are coming and going to the Cleveland Clinic Central Biorepository. And our EHE biobank is set up there under the guidance of Dr. Brian Rubin. And, and some people think that Dr. Rubin has the biobank, but he doesn't. He's an advisor to us, but he is a critical element and a part of our team in the biobank development, in QCing and looking at samples that we intake, and very importantly, in any samples before they're re released to researchers. So people can contact us, and you can also donate if you had a surgery any time in the past and tissue was taken from your body and saved at your hospital, um, you can contact us and we can contact your hospital to get that tissue that was archived moved to our biobank or part of that tissue. And again, we're not taking anything. We're not going to take tissue that would be needed for clinical care. So if there's too little tissue um, from a surgery and it's needed for diagnostic or care purposes, we, we will pass on that. We won't take that. And that is often, that call is made at the time of surgery, and we have to rely on the surgeon to make that judgment call. But this is an IRB-approved protocol. It is the wish of the patient who consents to the protocol to give their tissue. And we have overwhelming success in working with hospitals and staff at those hospitals to really help this come forward. So it's it's been awesome. We've actually gotten tissue into research labs that absolutely would not have gotten EHE tissue otherwise. And that's been really re rewarding so far. We don't have a cell line yet developed from that, but that is our goal is to keep working on model development. You know, we're, we're blessed to have Brian Rubin be, you know, overseeing the biorepository and his expertise and Cleveland Clinic's expertise. But I think you said it nicely. It is owned by EHE. He's just an advisor not just, he's a critical component of that. And and it, and it goes to that this could not have been done if you relied on one institution to do it. It's the work of the EAG group to get all these tissues from all around the United States or anywhere, basically, that want to submit old tissue or fresh tissue. So this is great, Denise. These foundations and all of these foundations that we're speaking with are, are really blessed with grateful support from patients loved ones, and others, and we are just stewards of those gifts. How does the EAG prioritize how these funds that are given to them for use for research? So how do you get some requests, the funds that come in, 
And how does your organization decide what to fund and what not to fund, whether it's a project or just infrastructure? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you are you are so right. And every day, you know, we have the opportunity to say thank you to people. It's really awe-inspiring to see the generosity and support that we get from the community. And when I say the community, I mean, it's, it's everybody. It's clinicians like yourself. It might be a pharma company, um, patients, friends, distant relatives, people who haven't heard from their friends in a long time, everyone giving to cancer research. And, and that's, I mean, we exist on that. We, we literally could not do what we do today without charitable donations and grants. And, and so fundraising is really an essential part of being an advocacy organization. It's not the fun part, but it is a it is an essential part. And it's the one that sometimes that can be rewarding. So at the foundation, and, and I think that so many organizations have to feel the same way, we are really thoughtful. We're very intentional in stewarding funds you know, much like we're stewarding the tissue that I just talked about, we are trusted to make good decisions. And so we're, we're stewarding those funds that are donated for EHE research. And, and I come back to, we lean on expert advisors like yourself to help guide us to make the best decisions and to put every dollar to its best use. You know, figuring out what projects will be the most impactful or take EHE to the next level these are the questions that always have to be asked over and over. And, you know, we didn't get into this thinking overnight. It's taken a lot of work and a lot of fundraising. Some of that fundraising, you know, if we're looking for grants, grants are often good to support more operational types of capacity. And we really are diligent about when we're fundraising for research, 100% of those dollars are designated for research only. They're not designated or used for operational capacity. Um, so that's that's really, really important. And when you raise funds, you have a responsibility, right? You have to give those funds away. So you have an opportunity to grant funds. And those are the hard decisions to make, you know, which ones to choose. And sometimes it's a lengthy and slow process, but it that is really, really a rewarding process. And, and you and others as expert advisors really help make that happen. You, you are correct. It's, you guys are very intentional of what you do, and, and that's what we want. And I think people that donate uh, respect that. I also say that uh, fundraising might not be the uh, fanciest thing we do, and you have to do all that work. And I think you both would agree, you, you and I will both agree that even though the fundraising is a job, once we do the work and start connecting with people and loved ones that really want to support, it's actually a real good opportunity to have connections. So yeah, it's a lot of work to rely on grants and funds, but uh, in the end, it's, the, it's great that we're able to do that. You're right. It is. It's a great way to connect with people on, you know, in a different way. I know your journey through EHE has um, been winding course. Uh, I would ask, do you have any words of wisdom for others in foundations that are set up, what to be aware of and kind of the pitfalls moving forward? Oh, goodness. There are a lot of lessons learned. Uh, so I guess keeping your mission central is really key. 
as you said earlier, you know, shiny new objects. We have to, we, we need to stay our course as best we can. Patients are really the key driver. And, you know, rare cancer research is slow. So we have frustrations. We feel like we failed. Um, but you learn something often when you fail or you don't meet your goal. And that that's what we aim for. And patients, even though we, we may differ you know, I think it's really important. I'm not a patient, but I'm an advocate and I consider myself very, very close in that group. It's important for everybody to stick together and kind of stay on the same page with what the plan is and where are we going on the plan. And that, you know, is kind of fundamental to any business, any successful organization. It's, it's good in a household. Anywhere in life, we can apply that, really. Emotions run high and the sense of urgency is large to create change. So that would be thing one that I would say. I think I come back to something I said earlier. Thing two would be getting data together or making a plan to try to get data on your disease is is really, really important. And so many foundations that I've talked with are, are trying to do this if they haven't done it. And it's okay if you don't get the plan 100%, but you have to start somewhere, you know, start by starting is really, really important. And if it's a registry, observational study, any system for collecting data that could be usable and and ethical, obviously, is really important. And, you know, the last thing I'll say is, and there's so many great organizations in the rare sarcoma space, but in outside of even cancer, um, we've met so many great organizations. Networking is really key. I, I've joined in with some, some, we'll call them support groups for people who are in a non-for-profit uh, research role and, and you're trying to figure out what's the path forward. There is no guidebook on this. There's not a map that's going to tell you how to get there. Errors are going to happen. And, you know, we don't all need to reinvent the wheel. Sharing ideas, sharing tools, and just sharing our time, an hour a day, and it doesn't have to be every day, every now and then makes all the difference in the world. And, you know, I mean, people like you, Dr. Kuno and others, people that we network, um, clinicians, when you give just a sound bite of time or a little bit of time to talk through something, it just makes you see things in a different way and makes you feel empowered and know that you can, you can accomplish something. And I think that networking is really, really important. Denise, these are great observations and lessons learned. Uh, I go back to what you said from the beginning, you need data. And, and you're right. It's not anecdotes, you need data and how you collect is going to be important. Your group has remained focused on EHE. You know, you could have done a million other things. Um, but you stayed focused on EHE, which is a great way to move forward. And then you use the word emotions run high. I would say passions run high <laughs> because you guys are all passionate about what you want to do. And, you know, with passionate people will come, you know, opportunities to share that passion and redirect passion along the way. So we do appreciate that. So Denise, we appreciate all you do for the EHE. And I know you're part of the EHE. You're not the whole EHE foundation, but I do appreciate your time uh, sharing with us on Sark podcast here. Do you have any other comments that you'd like to share with our audience? 
Gosh, you know, I just have to say, Dr. Kuno, thanks for saying that word passion. It really, really is. I mean, and and we all know people who are so passionate and and it is a it it becomes your life's work um, in a large way. I just have to thank you for shining a light on patient advocacy for one and EHE uh, and the EHE Foundation. I think that, you know, keeping us being able to help others understand what we do, how we do what we do, and why we do is really important because there are a lot of gaps. You know, rare cancer, rare disease, there are just a lot of gaps that need to be filled. So thank you and the sarcoma community for bringing our foundation and EHE forward today. It's This has been fun. It's great. Well, thank you, Denise. And uh, I know that you're more than willing to share the guidebook that's not been written yet with other organizations that might want to learn about how to do an ultra rare foundation moving forward. But we thank you, Denise, for spending time with us on SARC Talk. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. So please share SARC Talk with those interested in sarcoma. Please leave comments and suggestions on our SARC Talk podcast, and we'll address those at our next SARC Talk. So until then, thank you all. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss a SARC talk. To find out more about SARC, please visit our website at sarctrials.org. To suggest a topic or ask questions, please email us at sarctalk at sarctrials.org. And remember, together we can find a cure for all forms of sarcoma.